MSW Media. The nation's been turned upside down with the release of a whistleblower report and transcript of a call that shows that Donald Trump abused his power to push Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, who's still on the campaign trail. Um, and after a week of trying a case uh, and doing my own practice of law, I am uh, here and for- am fortunate enough to have a guest who knows so much about this topic, somebody who uh, has represented whistleblowers, who represents uh, clients who are themselves members of the Intelligence Committee. So let's bring in our guest. Uh, Bradley Moss is an, a partner at the law firm Mark S. Zaid PC, which is one of the firms that is representing the whistleblower uh, in this uh, unbelievable case. And uh, just to be clear, he's walled off uh, from the whistleblower uh, matter so that he's able to comment on this uh, for us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Happy to do so. So, uh, first of all, uh, you represent, putting aside this case, and I know that you're walled off from it, but you have represented whistleblowers in the past. um, And and that's actually, I think, a significant part of your practice. Is that right? Yes. So we are, the bulk of our practice consists of representing people within the intelligence community um, on security clearance matters, administrative issues, and also whistleblowing concerns, because for a lot of them, especially within the intelligence community, their very affiliation with the government and the nature of their concerns tends to implicate uh, classified information. So that's an area in which we, uh, which we specialize. Well, what are the sort of concerns that people in the position of this whistleblower, what sort of concerns do they have? So for most whistleblowers, it's not nearly as monumental or politically earth-shattering as what we are currently contending with. For the majority of people, it's issues regarding misuse of authority and possible uh, misappropriation of funds by, I would say, mid-level managers. That seems to be the most common thing we see is that they are either a con- the person's either a contractor or you know a lower-level federal government employee. They're interacting with some level of supervisory authority that this person believes is misusing it to, whether it's, you know, using intelligence assets to uh, spy on, you know, an ex-girlfriend for fun Mm. or misappropriating funds to go towards unauthorized uh, particular programs. A lot of it tends to be very much in the weeds. It's very often not anything of significant public interest if the public were to see the complaint. But it tends to get into the nitty gritty details of government operations. And in a bureaucracy like we, the one we have, there's always going to be people who are being, so we say, less than above board. And that's what the bulk of whistleblowers are about. This was a much more uh, serious and sensitive type of situation. That's right. And, and 
One thing I do want to ask you about is this particular whistleblower statute at issue here because um, there's, for example, this matter of whether or not this is an urgent concern. And, to uh, you know, this is the first line of the whistleblower's uh, submission says that this is an urgent concern under the statute. We heard a lot of testimony about this subject from the acting director of national intelligence. And to the to the average person listening to this podcast, this is obviously an urgent concern. Why does that even matter in the context of, of this particular statute? Sure. So when the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act, which is the relevant statute at issue, was passed in the late 90s, it was set up to serve to provide a mechanism for people within the intelligence community to bring to the inspector general and to bring to Congress concerns implicating some of our most sensitive secrets, some information that would be classified. Prior to that, there wasn't really much of an understanding or procedure for how people working in you know, very classified uh, situations to go to Congress without violating their own secrecy agreements, without you know, possibly facing retaliation for getting fired for having gone to there. So they set up this mechanism so people could go to the inspector general first of the intelligence committee, go to the inspector general, lay out your concern. The statute defines urgent concern as being a serious or flagrant abuse of a law or executive order with respect to the operation of an intelligence activity. But it excludes specifically from that definition mere differences of opinion about public about public policy matters because they didn't want people just showing up saying, "Hey, I'm the president's briefer," or "I'm sorry, I'm the briefer for the uh, for this mid-level ma- for this uh, deputy de- you know director of national intelligence, and he's telling me he's going to push to reduce sanctions on Russia." They didn't want to. They didn't want that to be what was you know the the mm-hmm. point of this mechanism. They wanted to be for issues in which someone's actually abusing authority and violating the law. And so this allowed, you you go to the inspector general, if the inspector general validated it, found it credible, found sufficient evidence to meet that definition, that would trigger a mandatory referral to the intelligence committees, which was supposed to be funneled through the DNI. The DNI was supposed to just be the intermediary, their UPS taking the box from you to deliver it to grandma. They weren't supposed to play any of the role. The reason it was different here was because the individual at issue was the president who's above the DNI. And so there was a question about whether or not that particular reporting mechanism could be construed as applying to the president. That was the extent of the government's objection to forwarding the complaint. Right. It seemed to me there was a question of whether or not this concerned an intelligence matter as well. In other words, the argument uh, from the administration is that this is something totally separate and apart from an intelligence activity. Yeah. And so the, the, the response that I saw in the IG's explanation was that because this concerned issues of potential uh, interference in, in, a government, in uh, federal elections and part of the DNI's responsibility concerns protecting U.S. Uh, infrastructure and protecting uh, against foreign interference in the administration of official duties that it qualified. It's, you know, a bit in the weeds of whether or not that would strictly fall within the scope of what constitutes an intelligence activity. I honestly don't know how a court would have viewed it if it ever had to get into that kind of, you know, that level of the weeds and details. But for purposes of whether or not this information was ultimately relevant and material and reflected the type of information that needed to be provided to Congress, 
the neither, neither, neither the DNI nor the White House really objected or had a dispute as a legal matter on that front. Their claim was simply, this is not the type of situation where the mandatory reporting requirement is triggered. Well, yeah, a lot of our listeners uh, were upset uh, that it was that this report was not immediately uh, transmitted to Congress. Obviously, a chairman Schiff, the uh, Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, was uh, also very angry about that. Can you help explain how that came about? Sure. So. Ordinarily speaking, under the statute, when the complaint is submitted to the inspector general, the inspector general has 14 days, 14 days to determine if this is a credible, urgent concern. If the inspector general says no, they they inform the the whistleblower of that fact, and the whistleblower then has the option of just saying, okay, never mind, or they can seek guidance on a mechanism to directly provide the complaint to the intelligence committee but they have to get those procedures from the DNI and the DNI has to ensure that they comply with it. That is one option. But what happened here was the IG said, yes, this is a credible and urgent concern. And so the next step in the statute is the uh, DNI has seven days to basically funnel the complaint to the intelligence committee. The reason they balk at it, the reason they didn't immediately do that, like they've done in every other situation in the last 21 years of this statute, was because the person against whom the complaint was filed was the president. And so, you know, poor Joe McGuire, he's been on the day, he's been on the job for three days at that point, struggling with what do I do here? This is never, this is not, not a situation which we've ever faced before. The statute doesn't clearly contemplate the notion that a president could engage in something that could possibly fit within this definition of a, a flagrant abuse of law with respect to an intelligence activity. I've got to get guidance before I just hand this over to the intelligence committee. I am ultimately serving at the pleasure of the president. So while I disagree as a policy matter with how the DNI and DOJ and the White House viewed their reporting requirement here, I understood the legal argument. It certainly wasn't a frivolous one. They had some legitimate basis to say this particular provision does the mandatory referral process does not apply to a complaint against the president. Yeah, I have to say. So I, I've been trying a case all week long. So I, it's been, it has always been interesting. I've been examining witnesses all day long, and then I would look at my phone at the end of the day, or while I'm on the break in a break, uh, and I'm, it's just unbelievable to see what's happened this week. The whole world's been upside down. But I did get a, a chance to catch some of the House Intel Committee um, testimony of the acting DNI earlier this week, and. You know, it, uh, on my way to uh, to uh, try that case, and I will say that um, one thing that struck me is I think McGuire was somebody who, you know, he's not a lawyer, uh, and he was trying to get his, you know, try to g- gather information, and I think I, I at least understood why he felt like he needed to talk to some people about this, and you know, given the advice that he was getting um, from DOJ and from the White House Counsel's Office. You can understand to an extent the position that guy was in. Absolutely, and you know, this is, to be fair to him and to the lawyers telling him he didn't have to refer the complaint. There was some basis in precedent from the signing statements that both President Bill Clinton and President Barack Obama had had issued when Clinton first signed this into law, and when Obama 
uh, amended it during, I think it was the first, his first term, they included signing statements saying, I do not construe this law as infringing upon my ability as the commander in chief to restrict the disclosure of classified information. They were doing that to make clear that as far as the executive was concerned, there were circumstances in which they might object on constitutional or privilege or classification bases to the automatic triggering uh, mechanism being implicated that had never been a problem before. There was never really an issue of any political sensitivity that was above the DNI. That's what was so unprecedented about this situation. Indeed. So a lot has been made you know, of, of the fact that this, uh, by, by, mostly by Trump's, uh, obviously Trump and his allies, of the fact that the, much of the information here is from you know secondhand sources. In other words, this isn't uh, a whistleblower saying, "I saw this, I heard that, I was here and there, and you know I have these documents and so forth." But one thing I find very interesting here is that this this um, the 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 document prepared by the whistleblower appears to me to be identifying exactly who you need to talk to. In other words, all these people are readily available. This isn't like anonymous sources or things like that. You should be able to, a person investigating this should be able to identify the people underlying this document fairly readily. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, and I think that's ultimately what, you know, as far as I understood the IG's report and the testimony came from the DNI, that's ultimately what was done. And it's not unheard of for a whistleblower to be providing what is essentially secondhand or quote unquote hearsay information as the initial foundation for the complaint. They're not always going to be the people who are literally sitting in the room or literally had access to the documents. It is very, it is not entirely uh, out of their own possibilities that the White House officials who were referenced in that complaint spoke to this particular individual, knowing that this person would have protections and have the access to the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act to raise a concern that those White House officials don't have because the White House is excluded from the scope of that statute. White House officials cannot go through this process. They have no recourse to do something like that to raise a concern through a mechanism. They are effectively, you know, they're, they're at-will employees at the pleasure of the president. They don't have that option. So the information was given to this whistleblower who wrote it up in a very well-done complaint and provided, as you noted, this roadmap to the IG. Here's what, we, here's what I know. Here's the kinds of individuals. Here are the types of documents. If the IG had just relied on the complaint itself and did nothing more and said this was an urgent concern, it meets the threshold, there'd be a legitimate argument that that is improper under the law. But that's not what the IG did. He got the corroborating testimony. He got the corroborating documentation. So now the IG had in his hands the firsthand information to substantiate the quote-unquote hearsay that the whistleblower him, him or herself had originally provided. That's what was done, which is supposed to be how it's handled, so that it's not just based off hearsay. That there was corroboration. Indeed. It's interesting, of course, as well, because – Separate and apart from that, before the whistleblower complaint was made public, uh, we do have the readout of the of Trump's conversation with the president of the Ukraine, and though that is a firsthand document, I mean there were witnesses who took down the president's words, they took down the you know what the Ukrainian president said in response and so forth. And this on its face uh, corroborates what the whistleblower said. And in fact, uh, there's a pretty 
good match between what the whistleblower said and what is in this firsthand document. Yeah, and I'd say the bulk, the overwhelming majority of what's in the whistleblower complaint was substantiated by what we've seen that's come out already. There were certain parts that weren't entirely accurate. You know, the, the complaint had spoken of the idea of a promise and you know, specifically referencing the exchanging of the aid. That wasn't quite as clear cut as, you know, suggested when we saw the actual uh, transcript or the readout of the transcript that we got from the White House the other day. But the bulk of what was outlined in terms of how these conversations went down between the president and the Ukrainians, the extent of Rudy Giuliani's, you know, sideshow with the Ukrainians on the, with, in coordination with Trump and those State Department, the shunting off of the transcripts into this code word classified storage database to hide it from everybody. Those details have been verified as accurate. So everybody trying to harp on, well, there's one or two, you know, inaccuracies in here isn't going to be enough to discredit this complaint. Well, yeah, I don't see how at this point it can be discredited. And, you know, I will say that generally when you are complaining about things around the process, uh, it usually means that, um, you know, there's you're, you don't you're not able to dispute the facts. Right. In other words, it, you know, w what the first line defense would be here, I, I'll say this as somebody who defends cases all the time, would be, oh, this didn't happen. Right. Or. You know, you could say this is, you know, this was okay in some way. You know, in other words, if you look at whatever the Constitution, law, statutes, what norms, whatever, this is good behavior. But if you're not able to do either of those things, then you start complaining about like, well, you know, this isn't firsthand information, or um, you know, maybe this, you know, maybe this is a bad guy who wrote this, or things like that. Uh, that's sort of my take yeah, on and, it. And and in that last part, you know, maybe this is a bad guy. This person. Whoever he or she is could have been the most brazen anti-Trump partisan hack on the planet, and it's irrelevant because under the law, that person is not the one who gets to make the decision that this is urgent concern. The inspector general does, and the inspector general was appointed by the president. So unless Michael Atkinson, the inspector general, is in on it, is part of the deep state, and is just trying to bring down the president then the bias or biases of this whistleblower are ultimately irrelevant because it went through the layers of the bureaucracy to weed out and cleanse this issue of any potential bias. Yeah, and I have to say, too, by the way, I want to kind of push back on one thing. I agree with that, and I would also say that I'm not so sure that there isn't a sort of a, a back and forth or, you know, people use to keep using this term quid pro quo, which I don't like in this context, but you know, here I'm reading now from this from this readout, and it says the president of the Ukraine says we are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. He Trump says I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot, and Ukraine knows a lot about it. And he goes into, you know, all the what he wants in return. I will say, to as I read that, I mean, I what I understand this to be talking about is the purchasing of javelins of of a defense system from a, I assume a U.S. Co a U.S. company. That would be something that they would do with the aid, presumably that they would be getting from the United States. And so, essentially, he, the Ukrainian president's like, okay, we're ready to use that money, and Trump's saying, well, I want you to do me a favor, though. Yeah. And, you know, and what I've also pushed back on when people are saying, well, there's no explicit quid pro quo is, well, for a lot of the, the relevant criminal provisions, and you probably know this better than I would, there isn't the requirement for an explicit quid pro quo. It usually comes down to the term corruptly. 
you know, corrupted, corruptly seeking to uh, leverage, you know, official action in exchange for something of personal benefit, you know, whether it's the bribery statute or something like that. So I don't view the need for Trump to have said, I demand you investigate Biden or I'm not going to give you 400 million. I don't view that as necessary to have brought even a criminal charge, which obviously isn't going to happen here, let alone to warrant uh, inquiry along the lines of impeachment. So I think it's a bit of a misnomer, a bit of a misread herring to say, well, there was no quid pro quo. There doesn't need to be a formal one for this to raise concerns about abuse of power. Well, absolutely. So first of all, I'll just say uh, it is without a doubt the case that most, uh, for example, public corruption cases involve a less explicit uh, quid pro quo than what people, you know, are trying to uh, say is the standard here. So, you know, I, I was a federal prosecutor in Chicago for almost a decade, and my office is probably, my former office is probably best known uh, as a uh, place that would, you know, prosecute a lot of corruption cases, a lot of governors of uh, and aldermen, you know, all the governors of Illinois and, all, all, and uh, aldermen in Chicago are in you know, federal prison or have been under federal indictment. And uh, we, we, we have corrupt officials in Chicago, my word. <laughs> I know, right? And uh, most of those cases don't involve someone saying, well, if you want your uh, this property rezoned, it's going to cost $5,000. What happens is sometimes that, you know, the person will say, I need something rezoned. And they're like, okay. Um, but, you know, uh, separate and apart from that, you know, I want you to come, you know, do, you know, do something for my committee or whatever. And it's clear from the context of the conversation that the the person on the other side will testify that they knew that that's what that meant, or you know, they'll use a certain phrase that'll make that clear. But it's it's not a, a you know a sort of a one sentence that says in exchange for this I demand that. Um, but I will say this: I, I you know I wrote a column for Politico. Uh, right before I uh, got got busy uh, with my legal work, in which I said this is right before the readout came out, saying that based on these reports, that I I don't think that calling this bribery or extortion or trying to fit this into one of these federal statutes makes a lot of sense. Because to me, what makes I I actually don't think you know if if you told me as I was a federal prosecutor, a special counsel or something with authority to even to prosecute the president here. It's 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 there are challenges in fitting this inside criminal statutes, but to me it's obviously an abuse of power. And the real what makes this wrong is you have someone the you know is the president of the United States misusing and abusing his power as president to gain something for his own reelection campaign. That's clearly corrupt. And you you know why should we spend a lot of time trying to fit this into what you know whether this is extortion or campaign finance contribution or something else? Well, I think the only reason some people do that, and I'll admit to being one of them, is only if, if for no other reason than to try to simplify it for the general public, mm -hmm. um, try to put it in context that they could understand from what they would deal with in their or what in their lives, you know, what the rest of us you know, outside of the, you know, halls of power of the White House would ordinarily deal with. And so while there is this, you know, discretion in terms of how Congress approaches an impeachment article in terms of it doesn't have to fit within the narrow confines of specific criminal provisions that are already on the books, it's generally helpful from a messaging explanation, from explaining things to the public to outline how this ordinarily would fit at least somewhat, if not entirely within a certain criminal provisions and, you know, whether it's bribery, whether it's the federal campaign finance issue, 
You know, I think those are things that people can understand and view and comprehend as an abuse of authority, not only as a general matter, but in more specific terms that would apply to them if they were in that position. Yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying. I I, I mean, I just have a, I do have a different perspective on it because I worry that this is something that for very technical reasons you may not uh, have, you may have trouble bringing if you actually were going to bring a case against the a criminal case against the president, which you're not going to be doing because of the OLC memo that says, you know, that the sitting president uh, can't be indicted, uh, at least according to the opinion of the executive branch, which obviously has some bias on that issue. But, um, uh, you know, from my perspective, what I worry about is someone saying like, well, there's an issue in terms of extortion and you could, you know, we could argue about what, you know, whether all the elements are met and or whether this is something to, that you, makes sense to call extortion. But like whether or not it fits in a criminal statute or whether, you know, you could have a good motion that you could file in federal district court, it's extortion by the way that the average person thinks of it, right? Or bribery and or any of these things. And it, it, the point is it's, it's clearly very, very wrongful. It's clearly a high crime uh, by any definition. Um, and so from my perspective, you know, I, what I hope doesn't happen, I will just say this as a sort of an interested observer, uh, I hope what doesn't happen is we get into a, a technical argument about, um, you know, whether it meets some element of something or another in the, in the weeks ahead. Well, I think that's somewhat inevitable, um, not only in any impeachment hearings, which if I'm just reading this news flash is going to start as early as next week with with depositions of State Department officials, um, but not only in the context of the impeachment hearing, but at the Senate trial, assuming we get that far, there will almost certainly be lengthy legal diatribes uh, on the floor about the, in, you know, the narrow intricacies of how the existing criminal law works in this context you know, applying a double standard to the president, et cetera, et cetera, things along those lines. So I think it, it's somewhat inevitable that there will be some arguments and debates about what specific criminal laws would ordinarily apply in this circumstance and whether or not, you know, if DOJ wanted to bring a case, they would ordinarily be able to succeed. But I think in the end, you know, people understand that impeachment is inherently political. Um, it's a very drastic remedy, which is why it's only happened three times before in the history of the, you know, the Republic. Um, it's, if it gets to that point here, I think there's an understanding of the general idea that you only do this if truly necessary. And that's why right now people are assuming he will survive in the Senate. If for no other reason, then it will be political. And some people may view it as too vague and a bit of overreach, uh, whether or not that calculus changes, I guess, depends in part upon what we learn over the next few weeks as we get more fact witness testimony. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I will say I think the case here is strong, but um, uh, I, because we have the the readout itself uh, that I think on its face is extraordinarily problematic. But um, I agree, it's going to be very political. It, it, I don't have any anticipation that Senate Republicans are going to be voting to to remove uh, Trump from office. So let's talk about what I th this inquiry will look like. Now, as a starting point, a bunch of our listeners have asked questions about whether or not the impeachment inquiry should be narrowly focused. You know, John Mitchell, there's a number of, of folks here have asked questions about that. You're saying that, look, Pelosi's focusing it on this Ukraine uh, issue that was raised by the whistleblower, and they've argued for something much broader, uh, addressing other issues, what's in the Mueller report uh, about obstruction of justice and so on. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. So, 
it's, you know, six to five and pick them what's going to work best. Part of the problem with bringing in multiple other elements, whether it's from the Mueller report or from the Stormy Daniels saga, is muddling the message. Um, as with everything, this is all this is inherently political. So if you're bringing this impeachment and then you're a House manager trying to convict the president in the Senate, you want to more as narrowly focus your argument and your political messaging, not only on the floor, but also in the public as you can to make it comprehensible. And so, you know, for instance, I would not even bother trying to bring in anything about the quote unquote collusion angle of volume one of the Mueller report, because I just don't think people grasp it in the end. I don't think it's strong enough to make an argument there. I think if they've gotten, you know, something from Don McGahn in terms of hearing with uh, impeachment hearings about possible supporting perjury and destroying or falsifying records, I think that can be an article that people could grasp in the context of obstruction from the Mueller investigation. But the reason to narrowly confine this to something like the Ukraine issue is just because of how much uh, simpler it would be to explain that this is just the most obvious and brazen corruption of the process. And of course, we don't know, you know, there's this report that, you know, this is this code word classified database was used to store countless transcripts of these calls that ordinarily wouldn't be sitting in there. What else did the president say in these other conversations? Did he make somebody similarly leverage his uh, authority to try to gain personal political benefits from other countries as well? That's something that I think will play into exactly how broad the articles of impeachment ultimately turn out to be. Uh, Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, from my perspective, I will just say that, um, you know, if if there if I had a list, sort of, what is the one um, insight? If I had a pick, if the, if someone said, "Look, I have to try a case," uh, what is the one insight you have from your experience trying a lot of complicated cases? I would say that usually the simple story wins. In other words, I always want to be when I'm trying a case, I find a way to make my story the simple story and force the other guy uh, or 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 uh, or woman to tell a uh, complicated story. And um, one of the problems with the Mueller report was that it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages long. I remember when it came out, I went to the local. FedEx Kinkos to print it out, and they they quoted me a price of hundreds of dollars to print the thing out. And you know, this thing I literally have in front of me, the readout is you know whatever it is, it's I don't know five six pages long, uh, five five pages long. The whistleblower reports seven pages with a two page appendix. I mean, this is short. It's easy to get your head around. It's a simple story. You can explain it in thirty seconds. And overcomplicating this matter by throwing the kitchen sink at it, I think. Uh, weakens the overall case because it makes it seem like you're just throwing everything you have at them and it, it makes the story more complicated. Exactly. And with something like this, like I said, something so inherently political, something that if it were to go through would be the first time a president's been actually removed from office through the impeachment process because, you know, Nixon resigned rather than go through it and Johnson and Clinton survived in the Senate. To take such drastic action, you've got to make it so that people can understand why we are in effect cutting short the presidential term that the Electoral College approved three years ago. What you know, you go into debates about popular votes till we're blue in the face. It doesn't uh, retroactively eliminate what Trump has already done. All the judges he appointed are still there, but it is removing him from office and preventing him from not only completing this term, but then running for re-election. So it's 
it's got to be something that the public can ultimately, to some degree, get its grasp, you know, get its hands around, get its arms around, and understand why it was necessary. There's some people who never, you know, agree with that. To this day, there are people who say Nixon should never resign. But it's got to be for the majority of the public has to understand why this would be necessary in that circumstance. Yeah, there are there are some of those people. In fact, the first time in my recent memory that I remember that was I was on a, a radio show and Roger Stone was one of the other guests. And this is before I really knew who this guy was. And, and I was like, who the heck is this guy uh, spending all this energy defending uh, Richard Nixon? But uh, uh, yeah, there are definitely there are definitely people to this day that it's going to be divisive. And I agree with you uh, with your take on it. Well, let me turn to these. Uh, call the 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 issue you just alluded to, which is, you know, the um, the call uh, transcripts or readouts being put into this highly classified uh, computer system. Can you just explain? Uh, can you explain that to us uh, briefly? Sure. So, even you know, a transcript of this uh, this type of routine call between a, the president of the United States and you know the foreign head of state of another country would ordinarily be classified at some level. Usually, I think for this, it was just classified at the secret level, which is kind of the mid-range level of classification um, in the U.S. government. And so ordinarily speaking, the electronic copies of that transcript would be stored into a classified system that a large majority of cabinet officials and you know senior mid-level uh, national security officials would have access to so they could review it, see whatever the president did or didn't say in that call. So they know that in implementing their own responsibilities, what is the final and ultimate position of the office of the president? That's how things ordinarily would have always been done. What happened here, and it appears this was not the first time it had happened, according to the whistleblower complaint, is that the White House and national security lawyers were so, national security council lawyers, excuse me, were so concerned about what Trump was saying in these calls that they were t removing the transcript copies from the electronic database and moving it into a much more highly restricted database that is meant only for code word classified intelligence matters. Code word being there's, you know, there's confidential at the lowest level, there's secret, there's top secret. And then above that, you start getting what are called compartmented accesses. There's sensitive compartmented information, there's special access programs, and you start getting all these little program caveats or handling caveats as the terminology is in the security community. And so they were putting these otherwise just low-level classified transcripts into this database that is a very expensively maintained database that is meant only for the most sensitive of secrets. And they were doing that to restrict who could actually get access to it so other people couldn't see what Trump had just said. That's how freaked out these lawyers were. That is absolutely going to be part of the impeachment process because it speaks to not only the consciousness of the officials that there was something wrong with this, but also an attempt to conceal it from other parts of the government. It, now, a lot of our listeners are interested in knowing um, whether or not there'll be some investigation of what else is there, which is something you alluded to earlier. W what do you expect along those lines? Um, I certainly anticipate that as we get through these hearings over the next few weeks, there's going to be pressure to determine how many other transcripts similar to this one were kind of shunted off into this you know, sensitive database and why that was done and what those transcripts reflect. Do they reflect similar you know, potential abuses of authority by the president? Or was this just 
you know, the Trump White House so freaked out about leaks of his, you know, calls with foreign heads of state. He's very sensitive to that issue. Were they just ordinarily doing that as a common practice to prevent those types of records from being leaked out to the press? And it was something they were doing regardless of content and regardless of context. Uh, so I expect that we'll get some clarity over time as to what exactly was going on there and how to try to some extent to uh, minimize the recurrence of that type of behavior in the future so that this type of thing can't be so easily covered up. Yeah. Do you expect um, to see sort of a complete White House like we've seen in prior uh, you know, requests from the House, uh, you know, regarding either oversight or impeachment? Well, the one, the one caveat to all that is in the past that there haven't been formal impeachment proceedings. My understanding, and I'm still waiting to see what exactly actually happens here, depending on how the White House reacts, my understanding is that the Speaker is going to have to actually call for a vote for a formal impeachment inquiry. She can't just launch one herself. She has to actually get a formal House vote. That's what they did with Clinton. That's what they did with Nixon. Um, once that has been done, and I'm rather confident that would, you know, that would pass, the authorities of the uh, select, whatever, probably a select committee on impeachment, whatever they would call it, become considerably more uh, vast than what Congress ordinarily has. And it kind of overrides some of the privilege exceptions that would ordinarily exist. Um, that doesn't mean that the, that the Justice Department and the White House won't try to find loopholes to delay things. Um, but I think there'll be a lot of public pressure to provide uh, some clarity, not only from, you know, from Democrats, but I think some of the Republican lawmakers who are, I would say, reluctant allies of the White House because they want to get their judges and they want to get regulations pulled back, but they aren't thrilled with the president's governing style, will probably apply some behind the scenes pressure to basically say, if there's nothing there, then you've got to come out and clarify this for the public because you're destroying us in the polls kind of situation. So um, I expect in the next couple of weeks, we'll get a very clear understanding of just how much this will be like a Watergate situation where we got these extensive hearings. You know, we saw, you know, all the White mm -hmm. House staff come, you know, Trump come before the committee and then testify, or this is going to be a repeat of the last three years in which Trump just takes everything to court and tries to stop everything. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I am not an optimist along that those lines. We'll see. I don't have any inside knowledge of what the Trump White House will do. I agree with you that um, their powers are pretty low when it um, comes to a formal impeachment inquiry. I will say that from my perspective, I thought that really we were already pretty much there. I don't really understand logically why how much it matters that they're, you know, they either have a formal inquiry or they're considering a formal inquiry and they need the information to consider that. I, it doesn't make a lot of difference to me. I know that others, including Lawrence Tribe and others who've been on our podcast have, have suggested otherwise. But I, I will say that um, I, I would nothing, I, nothing, you know, I will just say for our listeners, that, you know, I would not expect necessarily fast movement uh, by the Trump White House. I, I do want to get to, before we go, and ask you a little bit about the security of the whistleblower. You know, one thing that I think is really throwing Trump off here is he's usually a person who it's like a jujitsu person, sort of he reacts. He's somebody who kind of goes after the messenger and he he makes it about him versus them. And it's really hard for him to do that here because, he did, you know, the whistleblower's identity is unknown and is protected by law. You know, but of course, he's made threats about not only the whistleblower, but the people who have, 
been in contact with the whistleblower. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, some of it is typical Trump bloviating. This is who he is. This is the street fighter mentality he has. He does nothing but counterpunch where he's going to run into some limits here are, you know, first for the person, him or herself, the whistleblower, hopefully that person remains anonymous and that the White House, well, they probably have an idea of who it could be, do not get to confirm who this person is because if the person is outed, their career is pretty much over. Um, but in terms of the officials who, you know, who leaked to the whistleblower, quote unquote, leaked to the whistleblower, provided information, the president, I would say, is using his traditionally dumb rhetoric and descriptions of how he likes to talk and he likes to use his, you know, he doesn't be all machismo and everything. In reality, if they figure out who these people are, they could absolutely be fired and they have, there's no remedy for that. They weren't whistleblowers. Um, but to bring in, you know, the hyper, hyperbolic, you know, rhetoric of treason and the death penalty, it's just, that's ridiculous Trumpian, you know, rhetoric and language that we unfortunately become accustomed to, but it's disgusting and disturbing to hear coming from the commander in chief. Well, I, I'm curious, uh, in, and I think our, so are, well, our listeners, um, as to what the protect, what the protections are for the whistleblower, what are the legal protections that the whistleblower has? So they, the whistleblower has some protections, but they're largely, it's not exclusively administrative. So the statute that we've been talking about, the ICWPA, was passed in 1998. But when they passed it, they didn't think to actually provide protections for people if they were retaliated against for having gone through that process. So they said, here, mm. here's a way to, to talk to Congress, but we can't protect you if something happens. And for almost 20, you know, about 15 years, that remained the case. In 2012, though, um, after a lot of lobbying from whistleblower advocates, uh, President Obama issued what was called Presidential Policy Directive 19, which embodied some administrative remedies. If you made a protected disclosure, such as going to the IG in the context of this statute, if you went to the, you know, if you made a protected disclosure, you could not be retaliated against in terms of being fired or losing your security clearance. Uh, by the by, your supervisors. So it gave you an administrative process to appeal any such action. So if you made that protective disclosure and then you find out your security clearance is being revoked because you made that disclosure, you could appeal it above the security office and there was a more senior level officials who could overrule it and provide you with restitution and restore your clearance. Congress codified that into law, thankfully. So it's not just the presidential directive and can't just be withdrawn, but it's strictly administrative. There's no right to judicial review. And ultimately, the people who are making that determination work for the president. So when you have a situation, situation like this, where the person who the whistle was blown on was the president, him or her, was the president himself, there's one of those questions of, yes, this protection exists if this person is outed. But do we have any reason to believe that it will be anything other than a pro forma process because there's no judicial review? The answer is we don't know. Hopefully it never gets to that point. Yeah, I will say it would seem to me that if the person is wronged in some way, they lose their livelihood. You, I would think that there are some sort of general legal claims that they may be able to bring. But that, you know, is is something that uh, that uh, the, the uh, lawyers who are not uh, walled off from the case will have to figure out or hopefully don't have to figure out. I will say just before we go, I guess as a wrap up question, one thing I would ask you is, you know, how do you think that this person's life has changed? And do you think that person will still be able to go on in the role that they still have? So my 
speculation is that the person probably had to take extra security measures. You know, if they haven't already had it, you know, alarm systems and video cameras around their house. I'm pretty sure that that's been done since this all became a media spectacle. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, I'm, you know, the lawyers are doing are probably doing something along those lines as well, just to protect themselves, just because there are too many people out there who, you know, I don't think Donald Trump or any of his aides would ever think of taking any physical action against the whistleblower if they knew who it was. They're not that crazy. But I can't rule out the people who live and breathe by the president's words wouldn't take it into their own hands, given what we already see in the last three years and the, you know, the attempted attacks on people from uh, those who've become a little too uh, ingratiated in political rhetoric. So hopefully the person, the whistleblower can remain anonymous, though can continue to continue what their work was as it was before and remain, you know, just uh, pleasantly, you know, uninvolved in the political saga that's about to come into um, the mainstream for the next few months with this impeachment process. And it might be one of those things where this person decides to stay anonymous for 20, 30 years until they decide to pull a Mark Felt type thing and say, (laughs) hey, by the way, I was deep throat. You know, I, I would not be surprised, and that will be something when that when that happens. I think all of us owe this person a debt of gratitude because there's a lot of people here who knew about this, and their instinct was to, you know, potentially to keep this quiet or to to try to make it harder to find out what happened. Um, and this person uh, took some risk in coming in coming forward. So, I, kudos to that whistleblower. I think all of us owe that uh, whistleblower a debt of gratitude. Absolutely. And that, the director of national intelligence agrees with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us, Brad. I really appreciate it. It's been a real honor. Not a problem. Anytime. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. <laughs> <laughs>